Really excited to introduce today's guest on, uh, on the show, uh, Raul Powell. Um, I'm going to read his, um, his Twitter profile because I think it's, uh, it's brilliant. Founder, CEO of Global Macro Investor and Real Vision Group. Business Cycle Economist, which um, you, you did actually write a book about that, so we can, we can touch on that. I don't think many people <laughs> uh, are aware. Investment Strategist, Economic Historian, Traveler and Rum Drinker. So uh, I think that's... Uh, Nicely summed up. I couldn't have done a better job myself. Raul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, uh, any particular rum or you know, anything that uh, crosses the bar? Well, rum drinking days are leaving me, sadly, but I uh, just, you know, I live in the Caribbean. You don't need to support the Caribbean. We've got great rum. So people here don't drink whiskey, we drink rum. So Zacapa XO is one of my favorites. Um, and out of um, Guatemala, Florida Canyon out of uh, Nicaragua and uh, Clement from uh, I can't remember which French island. Wow. So if, if your drinking days are leaving you and you can pull those out the top of your head, I wonder what you were like in the old days. <laughs> okay. No comment. Well, <laughs> yes. well, let's learn a little bit uh, about um, uh, like real vision, your your journey and your you know back in the day setting up. Um, how how many years into the journey are we of real vision now? We're in year six. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's it's been um, it's been crazy, and I've watched it all unfold. And um, <laughs> many of your interviews, and thank you so much from the bottom of my heart um, for you know changing or well, educating me first of all on something I'd not been educated in properly in my life. Um, around finance and uh, and money and uh, ultimately Bitcoin, which is what the listeners are all here to listen to. Um, okay. But uh, let, let, let's talk about Real Vision and um, how you started it. What is why? You know, start with why. Why did you start it? Well, my background was I was at Goldman Sachs. I started and ran the hedge fund sales business and equities and equity derivatives. I then moved across to a global macro fund. You know, I was lucky enough to work for the biggest um, hedge fund in Europe, GLG Partners at the time, start my own fund for them, uh, run that for several years and then decide to opt out the rat race and move to the Mediterranean coast of Spain, much like you. Um, and there I started writing the Global Macro Investor. So if you think about it, what I was doing is I'd learned from talking to and watching the greats. So when I was running a sales business, Stan Druckermiller, Paul Tudor Jones, Lewis Bacon, all of these legends, Julian Robertson, all of that, I then... Uh, Gave it a go myself and had some reasonable success with that. Um, Although nothing, nothing, nothing to get in the record books about, but it was pretty good. Um, And then um, I was then providing research for all of the same kind of people at the very centre of the system: the world's most famous hedge funds, investment banks, sovereign wealth funds, asset management firms, and um, ultra high net worth family offices. Now the financial crisis came along in two thousand and eight, and it was a really weird place because. I knew it was coming. I've been writing about it. My clients were part of the big short, many of them, you know, it was, a, we all knew what was happening. But friends of my parents or friends of friends would come up to me and say, well, why didn't we know? You know, Spain was decimated. By the time we got to like 2010, 2012, I mean, Spain was decimated. Um, and people said, why didn't we know any of this? And I thought about it for a while. And, Look, the investment banks can't tell you the truth because they've got shareholders and the worst thing they want is a run on the bank. I get it. But the media let everybody down. And I just thought, there's something, and the Occupy Wall Street movement was going, and 
you know, you could either laugh it off or you could take it seriously to realize that the zeitgeist had changed and the world was moving towards less elitism and more, and it's, it sounds weird in this world that we're living in politics, but more kind of democracy in that it's not right that certain people get the information to have the edge and others don't. So what we did was thought, okay, well, we could try video because it's the best way of communicating with people. Um, you know, we've seen the rise of podcasts and how they get hyper engagement and long form. And we thought, okay, this is the video is the right answer for us. So we started by speaking to some of the world's most famous hedge fund managers, people like Kyle Bass. I said, Kyle, would you come on and talk for an hour and an hour and a half about what it is that you do and how you do it and how you think and what you think? And to my amazement, everybody said, yeah, why not? Because they've never had anything more than three minutes on CNBC when somebody says, well, what are Apple shares going to do today? Nobody cares. And I've come from that world of macro, which is the big picture. And so many people are kind of in the weeds on the thing that they look at in financial markets, the bit that they understand. And macro is that other piece. It's like the global 3D jigsaw puzzle of everything moving. And it lends itself very much to this kind of thing. You know, if you think of Real Vision as the economist for the video age, you're getting closer to what it is we're all about. It's that very top-down but deep level understanding um, that people never got access to. So kind of we're driven by that democratization of the very best financial intelligence and we're also driven by access, giving people more access to people and the information they never get. Yeah, and personally, um, I've, like the long form I think was genius because I, I got addicted to those videos like very, very early on when you guys launched, I, you know, I was week one, month one, I don't know. And I remember some of the videos coming across and just like being blown away. Like this information is just incredible. And one of the first ones that really just left my jaw on the floor was um, the interview with Mark Hart. Uh, my goodness. Brilliant. Can you talk, talk a little bit about that for those that haven't seen it? Because... Yeah, Mike, Mark's a very private guy, so I don't really like to talk about him a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, you know, anybody who subscribes can go and have a look. But Mark is, he's a genius. He's just a genius. An amazing, amazing guy. Um, and he'd made a, you know, that public stuff is, obviously he made a fortune at the subprime crisis, running a small fund. But what I love about Mark is his integrity. Um, when I first started Global Macro Investor, it's an expensive product. At the time, it was pricing euros, it was 30,000 euros a year. Mark writes to me and said, I'd like to become a subscriber. He was one of the first people who ever wrote to me. I had no idea who he was. And I said, um, but he said, I can't afford to pay at the full price. So I gave him a special discount and said, listen, I've started a hedge fund, I know what it's like. Good luck raising assets. If you raise assets, come back to me and pay the full price. Fully expecting... You know, everybody in financial markets doesn't have that. My word is my bond is not really that true. Um, lo and behold, came back a year later, said, hey, Mark, here's your invoice. He said, no, no, that's wrong. And, uh, and doubled it and said, well, I'm, I'm now running one and a half billion um, because of the subprime crisis. Um, wow. And, uh, but Mark, so Mark's a, Mark, Mark's a very good man. Wow. And, you know, he's, he's just uh, an example of some of the incredible guests you've had on. And uh, I urge anybody to, to go and check out Real Vision, which, you know, I, I want you to you know, explain exactly what you're doing at the moment to try and help people um, understand. Yeah, so one of my key things is I watched friends of mine. See, I guess what sits bad with me is when I've got information other people don't have and they need to have it. 
um, because it has a big importance within their lives. And one of the key things is I watched my father retire and a friend of mine retire early. He kind of got a, he, yeah, he, a friend of mine retired early, kind of thought he'd done enough back in 2000. He, he didn't mean to retire early, it just kind of happened, his business folded, but he, but he was okay. And then he was with a Swiss investment bank with his savings, had it all in tech stocks, and he lost 50% and panicked out because he realized that this was the last capital he had. And basically he's never recovered. And my father was sold these things in the UK called precipice bonds, which were basically short puts for extra yield. So they said, here's this high yield, you get the FTSE with a high yield. No, no, what you got was puts. So he lost, well, it's actually short puts, right? So he lost 70% of those, for example. And stuff like that. And by the time we got to 2008, it was okay, because I got him into Bund yields at 4.65 because he was living in Spain. 4.65% and it was going to be fine. But 10 years later, after the financial crisis, yields were zero. So suddenly, no income. So he has to eat into his capital. Well, that's terrifying if you don't, you know, if you're not a multi-gazillionaire, it's terrifying. So what happens is he spent less and less and less. Um, and I saw the psychological impact, the insecurity that I had, and I just thought, this is wrong. This is wrong how people are put into investments they didn't understand. I mean, luckily I kind of intervened with dad a long way earlier on, but I saw many of his friends. I mean, they just, they don't get it. They don't get the risk they're running. And so retirement has been one of my key things. It's, is as a media business, with the kind of information that we're privy to, it's inexcusable not to help people, particularly this massive generation of 76 million baby boomers in the US. If you add it to Europe and everywhere else, you know, you have 150 million plus people that are all retiring with record low interest rates, no real ability to meet the, uh, their financial needs. In Europe, there's a state support system. In the US, there's nothing. These people have nothing. And the problem is, is what they've done is taken records amount of risk. And if you take records amount of risk in your late 60s, which is the average baby boomer is now for 65 or 66, you're opening yourself up to the, a huge risk of the next recession, like the friend of mine in 2000. That's exactly the replay. And that's why I've seen it before and know how it works. And the psychological state of affairs, if you've retired, is I can't buy the dip because you don't have any money to buy the dip, because you're fully invested, and you don't have a job, so you've got no income. So what do you do? Your whole mindset changes to sell the fault. I just need to protect anything I've got. Oh shit, I'm in trouble. So I'm, I'm really concerned by that. We're now in the, the longest economic expansion in all recorded history in the United States. It looks very, very late in the tooth. I think we're in a recession this year, um, and if that's the case, at some point, and I know people don't believe it, but the equity market will fall, also the credit market. Those are the two places where all the capital is held. And people don't know this because they think their financial advisors have done the best thing, which is they're trying to give them the most money they can to retire. They're like, oh yes, please, more of that. I need more money to retire without somebody stepping them aside and saying, listen, readjust your expectations and what you need. Think about where you live. Think about what the costs of living are, how do you get quality of life versus money equation? But they don't do that. They say, oh, just take more risk. Um, and that's just irresponsible. So that makes me really pissed off. And the real reason behind a lot of this is having seen this.
And, and just to clarify, it's not the people themselves that are taking more risk, it's the pension funds that are doing it on their behalf. Yes, I mean, at the margin, people have put more of this stuff in their 401k than they should do. But the reality is households have been net sellers of equities for a long time now. Um, but it's the pension system. Now, the pension system has been selling equities, but it's been selling active strategies and buying index strategies to save costs, to say, look, you know, it's cheaper. So it's been corralling, jamming more money into a small number of names, which is causing these outsized moves that are going on. So there's that and then the jamming into the credit market as well at all time kind of record yield lows. So that whole, that, that whole scenario is being done without people's consent. They don't really understand what risks are being taken both by their pension fund manager or um, by their financial advisor who's telling them, oh, you should buy this fund and this fund. Hey, why don't you buy the Vanguard ETF, index ETF? That's probably a good safe bet because it's the S&P 500 and it's indexed and there's low fees. Yeah, problem is, is there's record amounts of capital into that. So it's, it is a huge bubble. And, but, you know, predicting the stock market, I don't think is the right thing to do right now, but I'm just looking at the rest of the economy and thinking, yeah, you need to be nervous. Yes, for sure. Um... Yeah, like predicting the stock market right now in uh, in a campaign year as well. It's like, um, you know. Yeah, although, you know, we have seen it before. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I've kept away from equities and focus on bonds, as you know. You know, yes. bonds, dollars, gold and Bitcoin have been my kind of mantra for a while now. <laughs> and that's been very good. And anybody who's short of the equity market, myself included, I call it the vanity trade. Because we all think we can be Paul Tudor Jones in 1987. We're not. No. And you know, the chance of getting it right, fighting against both the herd mentality, the flow of funds, and the central bank liquidity just makes it very difficult. Bond market, meanwhile, is acting exactly as it should do, and yields are falling as the economic cycle is falling. It's just equities that are nuts. Now, does that mean it sets itself up for an enormous crash? Listen, the probability is, is rising. And you just said a key word then, liquidity. Yes. I know it's a big theme on, uh, on Real Vision when you talk about liquidity. So if liquidity does fall out of, of the equity markets, what's the worst case scenario, do you think? So, if, so, okay, let's look at the liquidity of the equity market. What's the reality of it? You know, people talk about the Fed. The Fed aren't buying equities. You know? So what is the mechanism? And it's not as direct as people think because the investment banks don't buy a lot of equities. So it's, and the hedge funds are shrinking generally. So where, where, where is this liquidity? Well, it's pretty straightforward is it happens twofold. The pension funds are, particularly the state pension funds, are maybe 40% underwater. So the taxes that they're in, that the, 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 the um, sorry, the states that they're in, or the cities that are in, increase taxes to fill the pension fund black hole. So what they're doing is they then pile it into the credit market and pile it into the equity market. So that's tax receipts are creating inflow. The other one is corporate buybacks. Hmm. So corporations are taking advantage of the low rates, so the Fed keep down rates, although I think rates are a function of demographics as well, mainly, but let's say the Fed have kept down rates and the demographics are forcing rates lower. Um, and so corporations now, with this ridiculous tax situation in the US, find it advantageous to issue more debt. So corporations are now the most indebted in all economic history um, to buy back their shares. So that 
forces share prices higher, so they're the largest buyer of equities in the world, is corporations buying their own shares. So you've got basically two, two buyers, is corporate buybacks and um, the pension system that's mainly going into index. And that's it. There's almost no other buyers of equities. There's some at the margin foreign buyers because the dollar's so strong. So when you're talking about liquidity, you have a one-way door here because if you think about it, tax receipts go up and down with the business cycle because people earn more and less. So generally speaking, if the business cycle rolls over, which it is, tax receipts will shrink. So in which case, that buyer of equities is gone and that buyer of credit is gone too. Okay, so if credit buyer's gone, well, who do the corporations issue this debt to? Huh, there's nobody to issue it to because the buyer is the pension system who's using the tax credit, the, the, the tax receipts. So then you've got the corporations now, they're seeing their profits falling because of the business cycle. So it's harder to service debt, so they start having to issue less debt because they can't afford it, and the, there's no buyers on the other side, so they stop buying equities. Well, that's it. There's no bars of equities left. Everybody else is a net seller. That's how precarious this bloody situation is. And nobody understands the simple flows. That's frightening. Yeah, so if you take, let's say you go to a mild recession of negative 1% in the US. So that's corporate profits and tax receipts going negative. Then what you find is there's no bias for anything. So you could see a mild recession with an outsized um, impact. So... I worry about this. I worry about the setup and thinking this is dangerous. And then corralling everybody into all the same names. So you've gone through a smaller liquidity door, a smaller liquidity door, and you're all at the top of this little pyramid saying, look how great my stock market is, and look how great my 401k returns have been last year. Yeah. You're taking out such risk. Wow. And I, I watched your... Um presentation the other day on uh, the retirement week and um it's a brilliant presentation 45 minutes well worth watching that one is free right um, for people yeah that's right it's free on the youtube channel um and i mean the, the, the reviews i mean already about 100,000 people have watched it but the last one that i did 2 million people watched it because people are starved of this simple information nobody gives them the truth and that's so annoying that people just don't want to give them the truth because everyone's got a vested interest and, you know, that's the big thing about real vision is we don't have a vested interest. You know, we actually genuinely believe in the mission that we have. Yeah, for sure. And in that presentation, you, you, you talk about the, um, uh, uh, the property markets and, you know, the, the figures that you were coming out with were like incredible. But the way that you broke it down, um, I think it'd be very interesting for listeners to, to hear your, your thoughts about that as, as boomers, you know, are coming of age. Yeah, I mean, this is a key thing. And again, it's, it's skewed to America just because of the social net in Europe and how the further south in Europe you go, the closer family ties are, you know, there's multi-generational households and stuff like that. But the US is, and probably the UK, are pretty extreme. And what you've got is a bunch of baby boomers who have done relatively well in life. They don't have enough savings, but they've usually got a big house because that was a big baby boomer thing to do, like it is for us Gen Xers. We love houses. Um, and so, so they've got these massive houses with no kids. Their kids, who are the millennials, can't afford a house almost anywhere. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to buy a house. And anybody in London will know that, or the UK will know that too. It's impossible. So you've got a situation where 
The baby booms don't have enough money, but got big houses, so they want to realize an asset. Problem is, is nobody wants them. <laughs> because the millennials don't want to buy and try and upkeep a six-bedroom house or a five-bedroom house or whatever it is. And they don't want to live in the place the baby boomers live in because there's no opportunity in living in kind of semi-rural communities or the center of America. So they want to get coastal or to the new cities like uh, Boulder, Denver, Austin, you know, places like that. So what you've got is this skewed market where there's so many millennials trying to jam into the low-end housing that it's basically kept the bid above their affordability because there's too many people. And then the boomers, on the other hand, need to sell all this stuff. And there's no clearing price because they're both buying different products, which is really interesting. So it seems that everybody's screwed in this equation. Um, and I think the only answer is to go back to multi-generational households. Um, because then you could, you basically change the entire requirement, um, retirement equation in one fell swoop. Because what you've got is your parents' savings. Maybe one of the parents can work part-time, so you've got extra income, plus extra savings, plus a house that they've paid off. So the millennials now have more disposable income because they're not paying for a house. They're living in a house. They share the bills, so it lowers the cost for the parents, but they have less cost. Everyone's got a free babysitter and somebody to do the washing up, so you know, it helps as well. And it allows the two um, prime working age people to go and work hard because there's somebody at home so what you end up with is a shared pool of assets with a shared pool of costs. And that is life-changing for most people if they want to do it. Um, you know, and again, the surveys show that millennials are doing it. They tend to get on better with their parents than Gen Xs did with their parents. The idea of us not living with our parents is almost abhorrent. Um, and and, and um, the baby boomers wouldn't have lived with their parents for similar reasons, but that's gone now. But they're much closer in terms of the generational gap. And so I think, I think that is a big trend and it's already started hooking up. And if it doesn't, well, you've got problems with housing. You've got real structural problems with housing. And you know, I can't see why millennials looking for opportunity would stay in the center of America, for example, or you know, in certain parts of the UK. It's really difficult to find opportunity in those situations. So what you've got is you know, this very bifurcated housing market. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, generational wars then, um, you know, the boomers versus the millennials. What, what is uh, your, your take on that? Well, look, I don't think the narrative is the boomers fucked the millennials. But my view is they did the rational thing all the way through. I think when they were in their 20s, they could afford to buy houses and clothes and cars and everything else. So the consumerism of America was born. They were given credit to do it. Now, that wasn't a bad thing either at the time, and it, it great, gave great economic growth from the 50s and the 60s. But then the problem is, is they all came into the workforce at the same time um, with some credit. They caused a massive demand shift, much like we saw China. Remember the price of copper kind of dislocated from everything for a while, and that was China coming in. So you had a new marginal buyer of incredible size that disrupted the market. Well, that's what happened with inflation. As the, as the baby boomers came in. And then as they moved through their life cycle, okay, so they bought the, all the new marginal stuff. When you get your first job, you buy a lot of new stuff. And then that kind of tapers over the time. Um, so inflation tapers with you because your focus goes, as opposed to consuming new stuff at the margin, it's now, I need to invest. I need to save for my pension. 
the advent of the 401k um, and the end of the defined benefit pension scheme system forced people into the stock market and they saved more. And that was a very good thing to do. So that was a rational thing to do. And then the rise of the index fund starts about 1995 and you can see the, the hookup in the trajectory of the equity market into 2000 and it ended up in that, that bubble and then collapse. So now the millennial, the baby boomers are in their 40s, mid 40s in 2000. So what do they do? They're now nervous of the stock market, but they've still accumulated wealth, so they stick it into the property market. And then the property market starts going up and the Fed have cut interest rates to basically zero. So they think, hey, I could do more of this. And then I do more of it and more of it. So now they're getting, what they're trying to do is fund their own retirement gap. So they're not doing anything bad. Property's been a good investment. Problem is, is too many people at the same time create the same bubble dynamics. They're just created inequities and they're all taking a rational decision. And then it becomes irrational at the end. And then that got nuked. And then this time around, the individual has been more rational. They are taking too much equity risk. But generally speaking, they've not been involved in all of this. But it's now their pension funds. And it's, re it's really the pension funds and the corporations that are taking the outsized risk. So the baby boomers didn't mean to screw everything up. Yes, they probably did some things like education, the cost of education. I think there was some selfishness in the cost of education, the cost of healthcare, because they didn't want to be taxed because they'd never saved enough money, so they always felt under pressure. So yes, I think they landed them that. But so you then flip to what the millennial opportunity set is. They have an equity market, they're, they're 32 years old. They have an equity market at all-time record valuations, corporate credit market at all-time record valuations, a property market, particularly where they want to buy property at all-time record valuations. But there is no opportunity. Now, it will change over time. You know, we'll talk about Bitcoin later. Um, and I think emerging markets, you know, we've had a very, very strong dollar for quite a long time now. And it's meant emerging markets are some of the cheapest they've ever been. The US has outperformed almost everything. But in due course, as ever, the dollar will fall. How, why, and the magnitude of that, we'll we talk about that later. But um, then people can make a lot of money out of emerging markets for another 10, 15 years. But right now, the opportunity set for almost everything is negative returns. So that's, so, and the baby boomers didn't do that on purpose. It's just what it, 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 it's when you jam 76 million Americans through the same pipe at the same time, and then you've got another echo boom from these kids that are offsetting them and are basically in their slipstream and it's screwed. And what one book I was turned on to by, um, by Real Vision, um, you, you, I'm sure you know this one very well, I'm holding up the, uh, the fourth turning. Unbelievable, like, you know, almost everything is played out as, as this book says. And um, you, you and I are like in the generation stuck in between and trying to figure out like our place in this whole thing. And what do you think that is? I, we're so cynical that, you know, I don't think, I don't know where we play a place, but all I know is that all of us have had to kind of pivot uh, in life because we all started with careers. M many of us from, from finance, for example, and it's not, finance is not the only example, but the finance industry changed, laid off, 
literally millions of people. And we've all had to repurpose. You know, we're over-educated and under-experienced in other things. And um, we've got, we had expensive lifestyles. So what that's meant is the rise of the entrepreneur. Um, and I think if I look at 50% of my friends, maybe even 60%, they're now on an entrepreneurial journey. And I think that's great. So the Gen X is the kind of people who roll their sleeves up and get on with it because we were stuck in the middle. Luckily, we, we built some assets. We also understand the risk of the system. A lot of people haven't and still felt left out by the system. And that's true. But, but we have some flexibility. I think. Right. Okay. And uh, let's move into Bitcoin. We don't want to keep the people waiting too long because you've been sending waves through the, uh, the Twitter spheres with um, some, some tweets recently. But I, I'm not sure that many people know, actually, this is, um, and I asked you before off camera, um, how you would finish the, uh, the saying, once bitten. Twice shy. Twice shy, okay. And because it's a polarizing question, the, the, other, the other side is once bitten, forever smitten. And um, Really? Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's how I see Bitcoin. And if, if I had a, can apply this to your own um, experience with Bitcoin. Uh, you came into the space um, much earlier than, than, than now, uh, and I'm not so sure that many people are aware of that, but uh, you guys ran Bitcoin very, very early in Real Vision, and I remember just the like- The first video, I think the first video, when Grant and I sat down, we talked about Bitcoin, and everyone thought it was mad. I've been writing about it for Global Macro Investor, for a while, I kind of suddenly went, oh my God, this is huge, without realizing how huge it was. My, even my understanding then was a fraction of what I understand now. Um, but um, yes, I think the first video, people obviously hated us for it. And we kept putting, and you know, I was like, people need to understand, they can form their own opinions. And even today, we've got a Bitcoin video, and there's a bunch of people who just hate it because it's Bitcoin. I don't know why it's so polarized, it's crazy. Why can't you have, you know, I just talk about, and Dan Tapiero is a big proponent. You know, what's wrong with Bitcoin and gold? You don't have to be tribal. It's just an investment. It may be bigger than just an investment, but it's one of the great investment opportunities of our lifetimes. Um, and there's an enormous kind of brain drain of people into it. So if I see how many people from financial markets that I've known throughout my career who are now on this entrepreneur's journey, most of them, are in crypto um, because they get it. But not only that, the smartest people I know are. So all of these macro guys, everybody from Dan Tapiero, Mark Yusko, Dan Moorhead, um, Jim Palotta, um, John Burbank, you name them, Mark Hart, they're all massively in crypto. You missed Kyle Bass. I, from my list I had written down here because he's just entering now, right? And yeah, I, mean, I spoke to Carl a couple of days ago. I don't know. He's not really been all over this as much as others have. I mean, John Burbank basically closed down his entire fund to do this. Um, really? Yeah. And um, Mark Yusko basically did the same. Mm -hmm. A whole bunch of these guys. So the smartest macro guys in the world have basically said the entire macro opportunity set is less than the one opportunity set of crypto. Yeah. That's huge. And then you're seeing the brain drain of technology people, um, the mathematician. I mean, the, the, the sucking sound of people going into this space is truly enormous. 
And it's, yes, of course, there's going to be some areas that's going to feel a bit like the dot-com boom in 2000, where you know, there's too many people and many of the assets won't be performing. But the reality is, is there is a parallel financial, and not even financial system, there's a parallel system being built before our eyes. And this is why you know, I have started to get more interested in Ethereum as well, just because literally every single person I speak to, when you say, what are you doing? I said, I'm building this, this, this. What platform are you using? Ethereum. I'm like, so Bitcoin is gold. And again, Bitcoin is a lot more than that. And anybody should sit down and watch that interview with myself and Barry Silbert, myself and Mike Novogratz, and myself and Dan Tapiero to get the really broad concept of what the hell is going on. Because it's, it's far... It's far too big for almost anybody to get their heads around, myself included. Um, but I think of Bitcoin essentially as the collateral, the, the future collateral of the system, you know, the, the, the benchmark by which everything else gets judged. The, and I think of Ethereum as the silver to the gold. I, if Bitcoin is gold, Ethereum is the silver. It's part industrial cycle. I, it's part actual physical business. People need it. Well, Bitcoin... Let's see how that scales. It will be used like that way, but Ethereum has, there's a lot of people competing for a slot on that, on that blockchain. So I think, you know, I like them both for that reason. And I just think those neatly sum up an entire future system. Yeah, okay. And what one, one more interview moment that, that um, really opened my eyes and like the sats dropped as the, uh, as the penny gets moved aside. Um, was when you were sitting down with Mark, Hyatt, Mark Hart and Worth Ray, um, not wearing shoes for some reason. And Mark Hart turned around and said, like, he, he looked you square in the eyes. He's like, you don't understand. Like, you, you, what you've got to get is, it is the world's first undilutable asset. And you kind of looked at him and shook your head. And um, then he's like, no, no, I don't think you understand. And he repeated it again. And he was like, damn, like, Wow. And that was when, how, did, do you remember that, that, that moment? I do. And I had just sold my Bitcoin. So that was in the run up to the oh, point. <laughs> okay. I just sold, and I thought Mark was wrong. I was like, well, not wrong. I thought that the forking of the chains was something unquantifiable and I didn't understand the risk. So I got out. I'm like, if you can replicate the chain and create new chains, then what is the value of the chain? Mark's view was that the adoption on the existing Bitcoin network would mean that none of the other chains would succeed and it wouldn't take away from it and it may be accretive. And as a safe asset, this was the best of all, the safety namos kind of argument. And my view was, we don't know, because this looks like, rights issues or script issues and stuff like that. So I don't really know what this is. So I got out. Um, and then I think Mark's argument is right. But I think Dan Tapiero's argument is the most pervasive I've ever heard. Because I was not back in. There was a ton going, or as I officially say, a shit ton going on in macro. So I didn't need to look at Bitcoin and Dan Tapiero, and the price wasn't really moving. Dan Tapiero kept tapping me on the shoulder and kept sending me emails. And these are macro data, right? So we usually swap emails about look at the Taiwan dollar or whatever it is. And he's annoying me, literally annoying me. So I'm like, oh God, okay. So I said, listen, Dan, we'll do this on, on we're doing a, a crypto, a Bitcoin versus gold week on, on Real Vision. 
just come and talk to me about it there. We'll do it live. And the Barry Silver one had kind of warmed me up to the digitization of all assets and other stuff, and the conversations with, with Novo as well. Uh, but then Dan just like, okay, I get it. I get it. This is much bigger than, than I was even possibly thinking of. And, you know, and it's not necessarily just around this concept of it being a safe currency. It's actually a whole new system. And he called it the security trust machine, which I thought was genius. And he called it an invention. He didn't call it, it's not like we've got a cryptocurrency. It's like, this is one of the world's great inventions. Um, and we have to realize that. So that, I guess that's why you're uh, once bitten twice shy because um, getting in early as you did, but then as you said, getting out, um, but then getting- You know, what twice shy, I wasn't thinking about cryptocurrency because you know, risk reward is normal. Once bitten twice shy as an expression is, you know, if you burn your fingers in the flame and you didn't know it, it's generally about risks you didn't know you were running. Mm -hmm. right? But Bitcoin, the risk, I knew what, I, I know what risk I'm running. So, you know, then it's, it can be once bitten forever smitten. But I, again, having been a cynical bloke, been around 30 years in this financial <laughs> market, you don't get smitten by too much. <laughs> uh, because every time you do, every time, every time, the expression I have is every time you think your shit smells of roses, you go back to get your face rubbed in it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I, don't, I just don't even think in those terms. Excellent. Um, and that's going to bring me on to some of your tweets that, um, that you've been putting out, which have been um, okay. really, like, like the, the crypto sphere has been going, um, you know, crazy. Um, uh, you, you've already mentioned one, um, you, you're talking about just bonds, dollars, gold and Bitcoin. That's, that's your focus. Uh, yeah. So is that what you're allocating at the moment? Like that all of your time? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, well, all of my time is in real vision, but all of my investment time, my key focus is, you know, yes, I keep getting sucked into the vanity trade. I'm sitting on my hands. I will not short equities <laughs> because the best expression of the view, and I'll just break it down, is that interest rates are going to zero. So bonds will do extremely well because bonds have implicit leverage in them. And, you know, any of us have been around financial markets, knows about stuff like euro dollar futures or 10-year you know, treasury futures. There's plenty of leverage in this stuff. Even TLT does fine. Dollar, because there's a massive dollar shortage, is a big problem with the global currency system that even the IMF, the World Bank, the ECB, the Bank of England, everybody's talking about is the US cannot be the reserve currency in a system where there's not enough dollars there when the rest of the world has borrowed 13 trillion of them. Um, so we have a structural problem of the dollar that keeps driving it higher. Um, and there was a lovely chain on Twitter about this, um, about both Triffin's Dilemma that I've written about, um, which is if you try and run a smaller uh, trade deficit, when you're the reserve currency system and everybody's borrowed your currency, you're basically taking less, you're putting less dollars in the market, creating a massive shortfall. This is really what's going on with the repo stuff and all around is regulation plus dollar shortage is causing creaking at the seams and the net outcome is the dollar keeps going higher so that's the dollar and i think that continues for quite a while gold because gold is already starting to look through this dollar issue and saying well if bonds are telling us there's a recession coming and the dollar's going to force it and it's too strong well eventually the decline of the dollar has to be priced in or at least attempts to do so by by printing of money. So we're already hearing about MMT 
as a way of financing social projects by printing money. Now, it's not necessarily, it's probably a much better idea than QE. Um, you know, yes, I know it's split between people on the left, people on the right, but basically, if you can help communities by giving them money and finance it by the, the Federal Reserve, it's better than giving it to the 1%, so, or the corporations are buying out their shares. So, but the point being is whoever does it, they're all ratcheting up the central bank balance sheet at, to unsustainable levels. So at some point, the Fed and the Treasury are going to have to try and weaken the dollar or everybody else's. And we've already seen all of this digital currency movement going on across these sovereign nations. I mean, there, look, everybody is working on this. And this is what, so the dollar is the next phase, which is, okay, if you're going to try and weaken this and all currencies are weakening, then, sorry, gold is going to do well. But then Bitcoin is more forward-looking. Bitcoin is, okay, what are you going to have to do to really get around this? There is no solving for this any longer. We know it. We all intrinsically know that the debt dynamic of the world is going to reach a logical conclusion. Now, most people think of it as there'll be a debt collapse and the Treasury will, the US won't be able to fund its... That's never going to happen. Because in the meantime, it's like the shift from coal to oil there's two parallel universes can coexist and everyone's building this digital universe and this digital universe is significantly better than the previous universe and within that there's probably nuclear power too so what we so that's how i think of it it doesn't mean the collapse of coal it just means that it it has a smaller and smaller place so i think so those are why i put the four the four horsemen right now I think that, that is the opportunity to play through the cycle. My investment time horizons tend to be six months to 18 months. Um, and I think that all of these should come into play over that period. Well, they've all been doing fine. Um, but I think at some point we'll all see a bit of a mania in all of these as people figure out how the business cycle knocks onto the dollar, how the dollar knocks onto the bond market, creates a self-reinforcing loop, how emerging markets likely currencies collapse because nobody's got any dollars, what it does to all of that, forcing the central banks to try more extreme measures, which puts the bid to gold, which eventually fails, which puts a bid to gold and creates a, a much larger opportunity for the whole digital asset space and Bitcoin in particular. Do you mind if I ask about asset allocation and how you think about that at this time? Well, Bitcoin used to be more of an option it's now becoming less of an option in terms of sizing so or you, you can size it more so if it was like a one percent allocation before you could be pretty comfortable putting ten percent in wow. now well you know what's your downside mm. that's 50 60 percent okay so you're gonna leave five percent of your assets your upside is 10x i mean everybody else would argue that but that 10 percent is not aggressive enough you know, yeah. and I would say, if I think about it that way, it's not aggressive enough. Because, you know, do I care if I lose 10%? Yes, but it's not the end of the world. So if I could put a 10%, if I could put 20% allocation in and lose 50% in a pull down, maybe Bitcoin trade sideways for 10 years, right? We don't know this stuff. Is that the end of the world? No. But if it goes up 10x, makes 100%, well, that's, that's a meaningful thing. And this and is, the, is this the asymmetrical risk kind of opportunity that, um, that you guys are always looking for? 
Yes, I think so. I think that's why it's attracted everybody. It's the biggest long-term asymmetric risk we can find. Wow. And it has proven to be, and people don't realize this, it has proven to be the single best, I think, asset of all time. And it's only been in existence for 11 years. I don't think well, any asset ever performed over a 10-year period like this. And still only owns it. I mean, are you crazy? That, so nobody, people don't want to realize how extraordinary the rise of this of Bitcoin alone is. I mean, it's staggering. And that's a point that you're right. Nobody understands. And it's a point as well that I, if I'm just having just basic talks with, with friends and family and they all think they're too late, you just hit the nail on the head. Still, nobody owns it. No. And yes, it goes through bubble cycles. That's great. Perfect crowd mentality. We can trade it. There's great opportunities. You know, it's not a one-way bet. And that tends to flush out the excess. You know, now if I put bullish Bitcoin tweets, I'd split 50%. You're an idiot because <laughs> Bitcoin people, yeah. it's going up any longer. Um, and you know, 50% people are like, yeah, that's amazing. Show pictures of rocket ships. So even within Bitcoin, it's, there's some cynicism rising. I think that's good. Like people don't want to believe the stock to flow from plan B, um, but they kind of want to believe. So I think there's a huge amount of pent up demand. Everybody I speak to, every family office I know that's uh, that is savvy, relatively savvy, has Bitcoin. So that's happening. Um, and the institutions are, are getting there as well. But you know, right now, it's got a, I don't know, $200 billion market cap. Well, wait till, wait till it's got a $500 billion market cap. Then it becomes more investable for more people. Mm -hmm. So this is what drives it. it it's uh, the, the larger the market cap, the more it sucks in assets. It's kind of like index funds. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But but what it's doing is its usability goes up all the time. And you know, uh, you know, Pomp always puts the thing, and Bitcoin's still here um, at the end of his tweets every week. And I think that's right. And I think that's probably the most important thing. It's been the best best performing asset. It's had three or four massive price cycles, and it's still here and everyone's still flooding to it. And yes, it's not a mania phase now, maybe it moves to another mania phase again. But the point being is, incrementally, the whole story is moving forwards. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, I know we've got um, probably about 10 minutes left. Uh, so I want to, um, well, yeah, the, the other tweets, um, uh, one that uh, you said, um, if you want to make a call option on the future of the financial system, you could just own Bitcoin and go to the beach which sounds like a nice idea in the Cayman oh, Islands. <laughs> yeah, this is the point that, that, that we were talking about before. Yeah. Right, the parallel system being built, we don't know the format of it. You know, I was meeting with the brave, there's a bunch of these guys on Ireland. Block one are here, I'm just meeting with the CEO uh, tomorrow. Um, Browse the brave, all these people in this digital tokenization world, right, which I think is revolutionary and real. All of these people are working on a different future. They're driven by a mission. It's incredible. It's a mission, right? It's not like, oh, this is cool, I can make some money. No, they're all driven by a mission to create something entirely new, to look at the problems and try and fix them. And that's one of the reasons Austrian economics has, has risen within the Bitcoin community, because Austrian economics tends to be more pragmatic about how these things work. 
And so what they're saying is we can't allow this to happen again. You know, therefore, if it's very Austrian, we should allow for the ups and downs of the currency as it gains acceptance. And that's fine. You know, the boom bust cycle is good. Um, but I just see the sheer amount of people getting involved. And it's just staggering. Yeah. yeah. So there is a new financial system being built, whether anybody likes it or not. You can complain about it. You can do anything else. But, you know, I've spoken to people involved with the Libra project. I mean, this is real. This is big, big stuff. And people don't get it yet. They're too busy fighting in crypto land. They're too busy fighting amongst each other. Oh, no, you're the Ethereum crowd. You're the Libra tribe. We hate you. It's like, grow up, everybody. Everybody is working on the future financial systems. Don't get tribal about it. And to build better societies and to rebuild communities. Yes. Yes. Now, go back to where we started this conversation, fourth turning. Mm -hmm. This is the fourth turning right in front of your eyes and nobody's understanding that yet. Now, the political system will change too. And that's the last part of the fourth turning. How and what way, I don't know. But um, I do know that potentially, for example, if Bernie Sanders gets voted in and he would take, let's say, people like AOC within the government, well, you're going to see one of the biggest wholesale changes to the history of American politics. You know, you're going to see huge problems for your energy companies. You're going to see Facebook, Google, and people like that being broken up because of privacy of data. You're gonna see the drug companies being taken apart for monopolistic pricing. You're gonna see the food companies being taken apart for also misleading information. It's like the tobacco industry and the asbestos industry. All of those will come out of a progressive left-wing government out of the US. Pretty similar to what the EU are doing. The EU are on all of these things. Um, now, if you filter that with a Elizabeth Warren message about how messed up the US financial system is and why, she understands why, then here's the architecture for the new one. So you've solved one of the biggest problems. One of the hardest things was this. We'll put the hive mind of all of these incredible financial people, technologists, mathematicians, scientists, you know, dystopianists, put them all together and say, build something new. That's what they're doing. It's a hive. And in the meantime, we're going to have to solve some of the other big structural problems that we face globally. You know, the retirement crisis is a big structural problem. We're going to need to think about that. We need to think about how we change that. We need to think about, you know, the, the corporate oligarchy that, that has too much impact on too many people's lives. I mean, it's inexcusable, for example, that America is now the 42nd li longest living country in the world. You're there in the south of France, which is in the top five, longest living. I live in Spain, which is about to overtake France. Um, uh, Japan is the longest living population in the world. Meanwhile, America's 42, with more doctors per capita than anywhere else in the world. Highest obesity rates, and this is all driven by corporations. And that zeitgeist of anger that has helped develop cryptocurrency and eventually break all of this too, I think. And so I think that's the fourth turning. And that's what I've been expecting for some time. And I think, you know, the, the, the Trump style was the, how to address the angry and the disenfranchised, which is I think both sides are doing, you know, the Bernie and the Trump thing. And there's a lot of validity to that because people didn't listen to them. I think Trump is a bit disingenuous because he doesn't actually care about them. Um, but his way is the, is the Boris Johnson way is let's look back make America great again, 
you know, it's kind of the rule Britannia of, of Boris Johnson. I think the future outcome is actually the opposite. That this wow. is the this is the last throes of of the baby boomers digging their heels in, saying, I don't want change. And I think it's going to get overthrown. So that's my guess. I don't know. And again, well, I don't really care, but it's not political in any way. It's observationist based on Neil Howe's fourth turning, which I think is dead right. In fact, I've got a podcast with Neil Howe. Um, he's interviewing me for once. Uh, <laughs> so. Oh, excellent. Well, I'll, I'll be looking out for that one. And if you, if, you know, what happens, what you described there, um, and all of this new, um, these new rules and regulations are in place and everything plays out as you expect, they're going to be looking for a new form of money and it's going to be ready. It's going to be well, ready. Again, don't, like there's no real money. If you think of money now as the dollar bill money, no, money to us is credit cards. Money to us is a bank account that I can transfer money to you by a swift payment system. Money is the cash that I have. Money is my Apple wallet. Money is treasury bonds. Money is money, you know, lots of different forms. So don't get caught in the trap that there is only one money and Bitcoin is not the one money. It is one of the, one of the forms of money. And there will be many others within this and I think sovereign, uh, you know, central bank digital currencies are one. I think Libra is going to be another. I think um, I think the securities industry will be replaced by the tokens industry. Honestly, I think that's coming in due course. Um, and I think the collateral system, maybe that's Bitcoin. Maybe it's Bitcoin and Libra. I don't know. But you know, Bitcoin puts plays a place of gold within the system. Um, you know, so I can see a whole system already. I mean, it's there. It's all there. Um, <clears throat> but it's not, there's no one true money. But what we have is a monetary mechanism because everyone's building the on-ramps and off-ramps from all of these things to connect to each other. So I can switch my Bitcoin into my digital currency from the sovereign to pay taxes. I can switch it back into Libra because I want to do trade and I don't want a currency that's volatile. I can do all of this. And I can do it instantaneously without anybody in the middle. So it's super fascinating. Yes, and um, a good look into the future rather than uh, a bad one, which um, a lot of people uh, tend to do. Yes, because, yes, the future can always look a bit dystopian. You know, if we go down the route of artificial intelligence, we can get to the dystopian outcome <laughs> pretty fast. But this is one of the most optimistic things that I've ever seen. That's why it's so attracting, attractive, because I'm so fucking bored of going on Twitter hearing people say, it's the central banks, we hate them. It's like, do something about it. And doing something about it is not complaining on Twitter, saying, oh, the central bank leaders, aren't they terrible people? You're kidding me. It's a whole system that's structurally, um, is structurally problematic now. And again, it's no real choice of individuals. Yes, certain people like Greenspan probably make some really big mistakes, but he didn't understand the law of unintended consequences. Well, the law and unintended consequences of all of that mess is Bitcoin. Great. That is an optimistic outcome because people are trying to build, re work really hard using open source and the hive mind to create something better. Chances are it will. Right. And one of the uh, closing questions, because your, your Bitcoin gold week that you did on Real Vision was really incredible. Uh, helped a lot of people in the community understand it even more. The standout interview obviously was uh shrouded in mystery with your um your stock to flow uh <laughs> your 100 100 trillion dollar um interview um how 
you, you seem to be, I mean, it was a brilliant interview. And um, I mean, just give us your feelings when, when you were getting, like what, what, what was going through your mind when, when he was uh, laying it all out for you? Because he, you know, like you, he is a, um, a long-standing financial vet veteran, um, quant funds, who knows exactly. Um, what, what were you <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, a, a super nice guy. What amazes me is, again, think of, the, think of the analysis of most securities or markets. It's pretty lightweight. And when somebody comes like him and builds a whole ridiculous in-depth model and opens it for peer review to everybody, that is the difference between Bitcoin and what's really going on elsewhere. Um, Bitcoin meaning that whole space. It's astonishing. Um, so... It was more that than whether his model is right or wrong. Don't forget, I wrote that I imputed a value against gold and Bitcoin back in 2011 when I first wrote about Bitcoin. And I was the first, and it went, that article got circulated a lot around Silicon Valley because I was the first person to say, actually, you need to, and I didn't even understand stock to flow, but that's what it was. And I, you know, my maths is not as good anywhere close to coming in close. So when he, when I saw that, I'm like, this is what I wrote about all those years ago. That got, you know, people like Wences Caceres in, uh, uh, in Silicon Valley onto, onto what I was writing. And then it was like, okay, this guy knows exactly how to do it. So I just think it made total sense to me. And it just proved out to me enough without being hundred percent conclusive that it really does act differently as an asset. And if it acts differently, then it probably is different. And that to me is enough of a QED for me to say, right, okay, this is, and again, that was one of the other things that caught my eye, not because I'm following necessarily as price targets and the halvings and everything else, although I do, but it wasn't that, it was the fact that it showed that the, we had some logic to our madness, to our Bitcoin madness. And can I ask what what um, other like uh, books or podcasts have you read to help round out your knowledge around uh, podcasts that you could share with the listeners that might help them on their journey? <laughs> this is embarrassing. I don't read other people's stuff, and I don't. <laughs> I honestly don't because I find Twitter great for the hive mind. So yep. I try and try and get input, and I will I will stumble across people. I'm very lucky on Twitter that to to be able to have a two way dialogue with anybody, and that's really nice. And people are quite helpful and stuff so it's it's that and then occasionally sitting down on real vision because i and occasionally sitting with randomly with interesting people like brave browser people and stuff like that but generally i what i do for a living is trying to think freely so mm -hmm. i try not to let myself be um forced into a, a way of thinking so i try and hope that serendipity comes along in some way when somebody plumps Neil Howe's book on your desk so you've got to read this, like a life-changing event. Mm -hmm. um, and same when um, Emile Woods and Chad Cascarella came to me about Bitcoin in 2011 or 12, I was like, okay, this is a life-changing thing. Right. And one of, one of um, uh, the closing question uh, I like to ask. And, you know, in honesty, without being flippant, the single best thing you can ever possibly do if you want to educate yourself about anything in finance, it's real vision. And I'm not saying it because I built it, but I know it. And everybody knows it. It's unparalleled in what you get. So I say, you know, the best thing for me is I use Twitter for my news and to broaden my scope 
I'll, I'll see things I didn't know about, and then I'll use real vision to understand it. It's as simple as that. And I will back that up 100%. Um, <laughs> an absolute 100%. And you, aren't you running like, um, like a $1 uh, trial for three months at the moment? Yes. Um, yes, and that, that finishes in the next couple of weeks. So it's only $1, and you get three months access to real vision just to get people across, particularly the retirement thing. It's just too important for people not to. We did the same one when we had the Bitcoin versus gold because it's just too important. Um, and so, yes, if people want to just go to realvision.com, it's just pay one dollar, watch it for three months. You will stay on and take a subscription because I know seventy-five percent of everybody takes a trial, takes a subscription because it's that good. <laughs> and that one dollar gives you the whole video backlog, right? It's not just what's coming out. It's not. It's one thousand videos. Right. The legends of finance. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it, it's literally unparalleled in the world of finance. The amount of information that we put together, and that's not by us driving any narrative or doing anything, it's by us bringing guests on and saying, what do you think? So we just get the world's most, the smartest people to educate. Why do you think no one else has tried to do it? Like, why is CNBC still doing their stupid shit? And like, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll stop. People have done podcasts, but they, we're lucky we have more access to people than most people do. So yeah. that's, that's a, a moat around our businesses is our access and now our kind of prestige and credibility is so high that it, it still builds a further moat around us. Okay, on to this last tweet. Um, if I had to make one investment for the next 10 years, it would be Bitcoin. Now, it's um, mm-hmm. a bold claim, um, but, you know, I, I think one... Um, you optionality. Pardon? It's the optionality, as we talked about. There's no better option. So, um, if you have to make one investment and it has to make a difference, it has to be Bitcoin. There's nothing, nothing, what, what else are you going to choose? What else gives you that kind of risk reward? The equity market, could it go up 100% over the next 10 years? Sure. The bond market, can you make 100% return? No. You know, even taking leverage and stuff, sure, you might be able to nail it once, but when rates go to zero, you'll have no returns left in bonds. As every Japanese government bond trader knows, it becomes a dead game. So, are you going to find the right stock? Maybe, but it's the odds are low. So find me something else with this risk reward. Find me anything, yes. And you can say, I'd rather have Ethereum or I'd rather have whatever. It's irrelevant, but Bitcoin is the most obvious because it is the benchmark against which all are judged. So I just, I just you know, it's not a flipping statement. I just don't see anything. Now, is it the safest return? No, maybe buy your house. Um, if you can, you know, if you can afford not to pay off, if you can afford to pay off a mortgage and own a house, it's one of the most liberating things on earth because nobody can take it away from you. And then you can work in a pub washing glasses and you can still afford to live. So, but, yeah, I always thought in those terms. But, yeah. Oh, yeah, perfect. And I mean, that, that message, you know, if I had to make one investment uh, for the next 10 years, that goes to like the 25-year-old in the street or the 65-year-old or the 70-year-old that's planning for retirement. It's all about asset allocation again. And it's, about, it's about sizing, right? So even if you are a 65-year-old baby boomer, could you put 5% of your assets in this? Yeah, I think that's okay. Um, it's better than having 100% in the stock market and the credit market, where the downside of your entire funds is 50%. So, you know, I would rather, I would rather they did a barbell approach, which would be to own bonds, just government bonds, 
with limited returns, understand what money they have, and then take some tail risk opportunity, which would be something like Bitcoin and gold. Works very well. Gold will help um, protect your purchasing power. Your treasuries, they're not going to default on treasuries. It's almost physically impossible to do so. And you don't get much reward, but you know what you've got. You know, you've got your pile. And Bitcoin will give you an opportunity to have an outsized bet for the future. And there you go. It's a, you know, so basically what I'm saying is, you know, something like 80% bonds, you know, 10% gold and 5% Bitcoin and 5% of whatever else you want to do. That, and then you can, you can go to the beach. Nobody's going to take your money away, right? Nobody's going to take your money away. And more importantly, that there'll be something left over for the generations that are following, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, exactly. Which is what it's all about. So if there, was, if there was one person, last question, if there was one person that you could reach or you could convert or you could educate, I know you've done loads of this already about Bitcoin, um, the, if they were to come out with a message or send out a tweet and they could reach somebody, you know, an audience far wider than us, you know, thinking about their demographic of, of their followers, is there anybody that, that jumps to mind that you would just love to see, you know, get, see what you see and understand what you, you understand? I don't know who doesn't get it. I don't, I literally don't. The central banks get it. The investment banks get it. You think so? The, yeah. Oh Christ, they're all working on it. Right. They all get it. Again, this is the naive belief that people have is, oh, it's going to screw the bank. No, the banks are already developing stuff on blockchain. They're already got investment vehicles. So I guess the only person who hasn't said he has, but I think if somebody was more vocal, I mean, virtually everybody else has, that really matters in this space has said something, I would say Bill Gates. Hmm. And he has already spoken about it, but if he was more vocal about it, then I think that would be the final thing because there's nobody else to convince. Who, who are you supposed to convince here? Are you supposed to convince Silicon Valley? Well, they all know. Zuckerberg knows, Teal knows. Elon Musk knows. So, okay, so that's all the corporate business leaders. You're supposed to tell, well, the big accounting firms, well, they're all working on it. The big law firms, they're all working with it. Are you supposed to tell the, um, the banks, well, they're all working with it. The asset management firms, they all understand it. Now, how do you get the, the public to understand? Well, it's right now, we're still not even ready for the public to understand it because we haven't got the applications that make it easy. I'm just reopening a bloody, another crypto account. I'm, I'm like, I'm a week in to try and open this. And it's just, it's so painful. Right. Uh, yes, it's less painful than it was, but it's still incredibly painful. It'll all change. It'll all change. You know, by the time you get to biometrics, there's no reason why I can't do my entire KYC with my fingerprint like you can do in India now. And then so I could basically open a crypto account in 10 minutes. You know, there's, there's a number of things, you know, we've got a long way to go still. So I don't think it's ready for everybody yet, but I think anybody who needs to know knows about it. I think all the central banks know about it. They're all working with it. You know, who's left? Right. Wow. Good answer. Very, very good answer. Thank you very much. Um, Raul, thanks so much for your time. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been great to have you on. Um, do you want to get into a, a little game of uh, 
guessing the high for 2020 Bitcoin. I'll write down my, I'll write down mine. If you write down yours. <laughs> God, I hate this. Uh, <laughs> 37,000. Oh my God. Read out what I've just written down. <laughs> it means we're both going to be really wrong. <laughs> 35,000 is what I wrote on my pad. So, oh, okay. So when, when it touches 36 K, whenever, We'll have to do another call and discuss what, <laughs> what, what's this, this is when it halves and halves again from here for the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I might not speak to you again until like 2043, but who knows? <laughs> 36K <laughs> is the one touch. Okay. <laughs> Excellent, Raul. Thank you so much. Great way to end it. Um, amazing. Amazing. Thanks for everything you do at Real Vision. Where can people find you if they haven't already? Yeah, find me at, at Raul, R-A-O-U-L, G-M-I on Twitter. That's the easiest way to hunt me down. Um, and on uh, realvision.com, uh, you can find stuff there. And um, that's the easiest place. Also on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn as well. And that's becoming a better platform for stuff. So you can do longer form stuff. So just hunt me down there. Excellent. Well, thank Great. you very much. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed doing it as well. So I hope people enjoy it. Thanks so much, Ralph. Thanks for your support. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed uh, the interview with Raul. It was uh, so kind of him to take the time and, uh, well, first of all, to connect with me to get back to uh, my approach. Uh, you know, these guys are very, very busy, uh, especially putting all their stuff together for, for Real Vision. Um, again, go check out Real Vision. It has uh, made a huge difference to my life. Um, listening to Raul, uh, you know, um, I don't know what you're, everybody's going to go away with different thoughts, I'm sure. I think um, a lot of the answers are going to get people uh, thinking critically um, about whether Bitcoin should become part of their future, whether you're 25 or 65. There's, you know, there's, the narrative seems to be there's a place for it in your uh, investment future. And it can't be ignored anymore. Uh, we're 11 years into this. And like he said, you know, it's the world's best um performing asset now you got to start sitting up and taking notice much uh much like uh, all the guys uh, on real vision which um, i've watched over the last six years that narrative slightly changed and some people now talking about it more and more dan tapiero being one of those uh now raul um his macro mind is amazing he sees everything um from a macro perspective and it's really um interesting to get that that viewpoint rather than um, somebody that is just stuck in uh, a Bitcoin echo chamber. Um, it's nice to, to, you know, breathe some air and, and see his thoughts, but um, overall another bullish case, I'm sure for, for Bitcoin. And um, I hope you, you look into it and uh, I hope uh, the, these podcasts go some way to helping you understand it a little bit more. I'm looking forward to, inviting on some more guests soon to talk further about it and um, round out all of our knowledge. You know, I'm learning as, as much as anybody else. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, you can find me at Princey1976 on Twitter. Please send any feedback. Please send any people you'd like to hear on the show. You can get across to um, a website, a very basic website I've launched. Uh, that is uh, www.once-bitten.com. And... Yeah, look out for me and um, I'm looking forward to the next show already. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.